0: Let's say you had a curiosity about, maybe even a hankering for, Indiana's signature dessert, sugar cream pie. You might search for it, and, on a typical foodie website, find this description, written in typical foodie prose. As Indiana's state pie, this rich, nutmeg-dusted custard pie also goes by the name Hoosier Pie born from Amish and Shaker communities that settled in Indiana in the 1800s, this quote-unquote desperation pie, a category that refers to pies made when fresh fruit wasn't available or money was short, is as simple as it is delicious. Now, sugar cream pie may be delicious, but there's nothing delicious, nothing delectable in that description. Compare that to the one Matthew Gavin Frank offers in his new book, The Mad Feast, an Ecstatic Tour Through America's Food. Our Hoosier cream pie is so soft we can cut it with our pinkies. So sweet we can think only of how it moves us, speeds our hearts, allows us to run from towns called Amboy and Ammo, Trafalgar and Troy. Running, We can think of all our dead aunts and uncles, all of the filled-in quarries, their ceilings waiting to collapse. The kinds of state histories buried beneath rock and dust, and tablespoons of sugar we allow to burn, harden, lacquer the tops of our Hoosier cream pies. Frank's description is no historical tidbit or bland factoid. It's something more like a tribute though only if a tribute can embrace the sadness of what it celebrates, the troubled soul beneath its shining surface. And, like the rest of Frank's book, it's wonderfully written. Here is a food writer who cares as much about the words on the page as the food in our mouths. And the rest of Frank's attention, and the result of Frank's attention to both, is a book that gives us a fresh look at America and its food. Frank takes up 50 signature dishes from 50 states in 50 essays, each as surprising and engaging as a dish cooked up by a half-crazed, half-genius chef who's determined that the best tastes make the familiar strange, but no less enticing. Matt Frank, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Thanks for having me, Eric.
0: Oh, I'm excited to talk to you today. Uh, you've got this new book, Mad Feast, an ecstatic tour through America's food. Uh, and it is, it is, it is mad and ecstatic and crazy to read and wildly interesting. Um, and, and so the obvious question to me is, where did this cookbook come from? Well, cookbook travel writing, food writing, personal essay, imaginative flight of fancy. I mean, it's got it all in there. Um, so it's an unusual book and I definitely want to get to it, but you are an unusual writer. You don't come to, down the, the, the kind of traditional track of, you know, I, I went to Oxford and Princeton and then I somehow wound up making immortal literature. You've got a really kind of funky background. Um, what What is that all about? Where, where does this book come from? Tell us a little bit about our, its origins before we get to it.
1: Well, for, first of all, thank you so much for saying all of those nice things. And, and secondly, Thank you for, uh, that, that awesome British accent. (laughs) That was, that was great. Um, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, um, I spent most of my occupational life in restaurant kitchens. Uh, I, I started at, uh, age 11 washing dishes in a fast food chicken shack on the outskirts of Chicago. Um, it was this, uh, this place called the Broastery, which, uh, well, um, you remember, I'm sure that, that kind of roasted chicken craze in the mid eighties. Um, it was supposed to be this healthier uh, alternative to fried chicken, which is completely false. Um, it's, it's deep fried chicken, especially, you know, essentially just in a lot more oil. So it's, it's kind of like half pressure cooked, half deep fried, um, Anyway, yeah, I I graduated to my you know role as a broaster uh, too, which I, I guess it's just an unfortunate word to lend to food broasted, um, too broast. It just it sounds so so unappetizing. But um, I remember when I, I you know became a broaster um, and stopped washing dishes there, I I was compelled by my boss, this um, really dyspeptic and megalomaniacal guy named Ira to uh shake these um kind of frying baskets up and down while they were in the oil. I think um this was in the early stage of roasting chicken. The technique was and the philosophy behind it was kind of ill formed and and it remained that way, frankly, but uh, um I think Ira thought that if we shook these baskets up and down in the oil, the oil would somehow mi- miraculously not kind of, uh, embed itself into the chicken and breading itself, but miraculously fly off. Um, and then, you know, the resulting fried chicken would thereby somewhat, you know, somehow be healthier. Um, it, it wasn't, of course. And, and we fry cooks just got scarred up as a result. I I think my oil scars on my my forearms faded only just last year. But um, I don't know, man. I I guess I've just been thinking about food and working with food and manipulating it and touching it and interrogating it. And in part, like in the broistery, sacrificing my body to it uh, for for so many years. It just, I don't know, is sort of this default obsession of mine. And I uh eventually um you know just started started writing about it and um in the book in the mad feast I I really just wanted to start interrogating these seemingly mundane dishes um as associated with each of our 50 US states um just kind of scratching at them and scratching at them and scratching at them until some kind of inner holiness or horror uh began to leak out, and um, that holiness and horror usually kind of trickled its way up along some kind of shadowy back alleys of of regional u s history, and uh, I kind of embedded my discussions of these dishes into those shadowy back alleys, I guess in some kind of uh, attempt, however hazy, to comment on why we eat, what we eat, where we eat it there's a there's a sort of deep love that
0: only a love that 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 is mixed with abhorrence could that's fueling the book and i want to go back to that um you call it a spastic lyrical anti-cookbook cookbook cookbook, right that's kind of the phrase uh could you unpack that a little bit for us because you you get this sense you know in a cookbook you're expecting this kind of lavish sense of food writing and celebration. Um, So, so to call it an anti-cookbook cookbook cookbook, right there, you know, the reader might be like, what am I getting myself into?
1: Yeah, which is why the book has a preface. Um, My, uh, my editor was really worried about that too, um, frankly, uh, that folks would open up um, the book if there was no kind of you know preface as disclaimer <laughs> um in in the beginning and just yeah basically say like where where am i and what is this and so um reluctantly i wrote that preface um i kind of you know i'm all about being disoriented uh, when i when i open up a book and and you know um i'm all about just kind of arguing with a text and then conversing with it and and, and all of this and just kind of grappling my way towards some kind of understanding of it but um but i understand how how that might be um off-putting too and so and so the preface found its way in there the the cookbook part of spastic lyrical anti cookbook cookbook um is there, because there are 50 recipes, um, in the book, um, one for each, uh, uh, essay, uh, one for each of the 50 U.S. states, um, as contributed by, um, a chef working in a restaurant in, in the corresponding states. Um, the, the, I'm moving backwards with this unpacking, I guess, the, uh, the anti-cookbook portion, um, this is how linear I am. I'm starting, <laughs> the last thing. I'm going from cookbook to anti-cookbook, but, on um, the, Uh, The anti-cookbook portion of it is um, I've long found uh, that a lot of the text that accompanies recipes um, in in our cookbooks, uh, typically, I mean, not exclusively, but typically, um, however brief these these portions of text are, are are terribly uninspiring and rote, and they're not necessarily – Offering us um, any new point of entry, um, not only into the dish itself, but uh, the dish's history and, um, you know, however beautiful or atrocious that history is. And uh, I I just felt these dishes um, that I at least, you know, was engaging in this book were... We're right for interrogation they're dishes we oftentimes take for granted. Um, we see them on the menu and and you know kind of uh, leash very little thought uh to them i guess and and I wanted the the text of of these essays to kind of undo some of um some of that complacency with which we greet um food we we only claim i guess in other cookbooks to to celebrate or um you know uh, uh yeah use as a um, a point of connection with um kind of our childhoods or with various other memories or with family members and um i felt like there was more to the story than that and so um i felt like the the corresponding uh, essays kind of Interrogated uh, the the parameters of of the cookbook and um, and of food writing and, and and basically asked what could it do? what should it do that that it isn 't doing um, why I asked myself, why do I find um, you know ninety five percent of the the food writing that i that I read so terribly uninspiring and um just kind of flogging a dead horse and not necessarily saying anything new and um and I asked why do I feel that way and why am I still so obsessed with food and still so compelled to write about it and 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 how can I bring something new to it and I guess that's where the anti-cookbook um part comes in and the uh the spastic lyrical stuff as as i'm guessing you can you can get from my my kind of meandering answers um uh, sort of sort of points to uh the the style toward which i i naturally uh gravitate um i'm naturally digressive and Rather than, I guess, sweep some of these digressions as, as they kind of, you know, uh, uh, leash themselves up to meditations on food and state history um, under the, the essayistic carpet. Um, I decided to inflame them and talk about them and, uh, you know, um, manipulate connections between some of these digressive threads, state history, um, and the food to see how each would converse with the other and how that conversation would maybe grapple, uh, uh, would maybe a, you know, or, or compel us, I guess, toward uh, the illusion of a larger understanding about, um, as I mentioned, uh, wh- wh- why we eat, um, what we eat, where we eat it in this country. Yeah,
0: I, I think that um, if I could maybe crisscross back uh, over some of what you said to give listeners a better sense of the book, the book is is sumptuously produced. It's it's really a beautiful hardback, a, a gorgeous cover. Um, you open it up, and it seems. As though it's going to be the the kind of height of the logicians' uh, kitchen. There's there's fifty chapters, one for each state. Uh, there's a food that is featured in each chapter. So so far, you're thinking, oh well, this is this is kind of the straightforward layout of one of those interesting cookbooks that you could give grandma uh, for the holidays. And then you start to look at one of the given. Uh, tables of contents And you've broken it up Into regions And so you see Oh well it's even Broken down into Different regional areas You know And then you think Like Uncle John Oh he has an interest In America I'll, I'll get this for him And then As you start to get To the subtitles You see what you're Going to get into And if I could just read Here's what's going on In the Mountain West You have Wyoming Idaho Montana And Colorado But here are the actual Titles uh, That you give us The Desperate Deranging Of Milk Can Supper Prayer for the Spud nuts as they take us as they take to the sky, the circumventing of the elk stew at el- altitude with the Denver omelette I mean suddenly this fun starts to infuse it, and I, I think that 's one of the things I would want to highlight for listeners um, when I was trying to get at the the mix of emotion that 's going on in the piece. I think what you see is a love of the fool food. I mean, even as you were describing roasting, you could tell that you had an affection for this <laughs> odd thing that was coming out of it. And each of these foods, you're not afraid to to turn it over and look at it from all its dimensionality and see what's going on inside of it. Uh, and it makes for a really rich reading experience.
1: Hey, thanks so much, Eric. Yeah, I've, I've always been um, interested in, in the ways in which um, indictment uh dovetails with affection um you know and so i uh Obviously, you know I, I have a love for all of these foods, and um, uh, but 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 of course, um, if if you love something completely um, and obsessively, you don't love it in a in a one dimensional way, and so um, you you want to love the food for um, for its imperfections, and um, occasionally even um, even though you don't love the a, a, a lot of the the uh, uh, history um, response responsible uh, for the food appearing on our plate in its current incarnation to today um, you you want to love the food um, for the fact that uh, you know it's it's passed through uh, the lens of uh, some some kind of atrocious uh, uh, uh uh, historical events, um, in, in our country, um, in, in order to get to us. And I, I think, uh, if we eat these dishes or if I inspire readers to eat these dishes with, with heavier hearts, um, that's, that, that's something that I, I've, I've committed out of love. So certainly I, um, and of course I, I had so much fun writing this book and I think that kind of bleeds through too. So,
0: Oh, yeah. There's not a sentence, I I think, that isn't energetic in the entire thing. Uh, Yeah. Picking up on what you said, you know, when you when you crack open the the cookbooks that you find on the browsing tables back when there were bookstores, but the ones that still show up on online and things like that or, or the photographs that go with them, they're like foods without history that have been airbrushed into perfection. And the foods that you give us, they have carried their scars and crimes through the maelstrom of history to show up on the plate. And so you're eating something that that is rich and full and mixed and shot through with American culture, which is a lot different than kind of bringing out the supermodel version of key lime pie and saying, isn't it gorgeous? Doesn't it, you know, photograph so well?
1: (laughs) I mean, our – our the the things and the people um with which and with whom we are most intimate uh i i think um are are folks we occasionally ridicule um are folks uh we occasionally indict and um Uh, folks with whom we argue, uh, and interrogate, um, even though we, we love them so completely, we love them so much, we free ourselves to, um, indict and ridicule every so often. And, um, I, I guess, uh, I mean, this is going to sound completely hokey, but, uh, I viewed each of these dishes and their stories as, as members of my family, (laughs) um, every so often as I was, um, writing these, these essays, um, loving them even while kind of pushing them away and being revolted and then you know i I get to another bit of information and then i just want to take them close into my chest again and and whisper sweet nothings into their ears and calm them down and uh yeah and i'm talking about maybe family members and and um food dishes as i'm saying that so yeah
0: well i wonder if you'd be willing to to read us a sample of it so that listeners can get some sense of you know what they'd be getting into
1: Sure, sure yeah i I could read a really short um segment uh um i I live in Michigan um right now, and i uh because I, I am presently you know embedded within the state of Michigan, I feel like i can 't read the Michigan essay. It just feels too intimate um, uh, I feel like the trees will have some sort of conniption fit out the window or something, but um I do want to read something close to Michigan um so i I'll, I'll read a Maybe a uh, the first two segments of the the Minnesota essay, um, and the the dish that I chose for Minnesota is uh, the hot dish. Um, I I think a lot of upper Midwesterners know what hot dish is, but um, for the for folks who who don't, um, hot dish is essentially a catch-all casserole birthed in desperation (laughs) Um, and and there's usually you know something crunchy on the top it's like all of this this amalgam of soft stuff and stewed stuff meat vegetables potatoes cream of mushroom soup and so on um and then there's usually kind of a, a crunchy topping um and uh i i guess without further ado i'll just get into it because i talk about some of that that stuff uh in the in the essay the title is the hot dish muddies the water or those poor drowned this is desperation imagination blowing bubbles into our cream of mushroom soup not because we're feeling playful but because in this cold the snow fine as dust It hurts to take air in. So we extend our exhales as long as we can. Pretend that history and nostalgia are the same thing. This has everything to do with a tater tot crust as blanket in our hot dish as some golden brown storm cloud cresting the baking pan yanked from failing oven after failing oven in the church basements of Arrowhead along the shores of Lake Superior in International Falls Minneapolis St. Paul This winter has depth layers This is winter as casserole as the French word for saucepan. This is a season so freezing it doubles back on itself and simmers. Sometimes our bodies get so cold they burn. Sometimes we overflow the pan's lip, stiffen on the element. Sometimes, like the drowned with ice in their lungs, we stick to the bottom. In this weather, unlike the tater tots in our hot dish, we don't golden, but redden. Uncle talks of his years harvesting sugar beets, raising turkeys in Todd County, now the poorest goddamn county in the state, he says, before he was forced by General Mills, Cargill, Hormel, and Schwan to retire. These same companies now producing the processed hamburger and frozen string beans and potato buds we heap into our hot dish, used to feed congregations. He lost so much of his body to the cold and to the thresher, he has a single finger left. The important one, he says, as he struggles to wrap it like a boa over the stem of his fork. Sink it into the into the hottest middle part beneath the tater tots, according to Hallie Heron's article, heating up the heartland, Minnesota's signature hot dish combines heartiness, great taste, and adaptability. Our state casserole retains no official recipe or rules beyond economic and gustatory desperation. As such, we have our hamburger mashed potato string bean cream of mushroom soup le choy fried onion hot dish, and our hot dish made with canned tuna and Kraft macaroni and cheese, with canned peas or canned corn, topped with potato chips crushed to dust, or shoestring potatoes, or anything crunchy and sharp enough to remind us that we still have some fight left, even in all of this cold that were not all, just mostly, soft. Harron says Hot Dish was birthed out of hardship when, quote, budget-minded farm wives needed to feed their own families, as well as congregations in the basements of the first Minnesota churches. And she says that the cream of mushroom soup soon became so favored, so ubiquitous, that it became better known in early Hot Dish circles as Lutheran binder. And and I guess I'll leave it there, Eric.
0: <laughs> That's great.
1: <laughs>
0: I grew up eating that dish. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, I, I grew up I grew up in, on the outskirts of Chicago again, but I grew up eating a variation or many variations of, of hot dish, um all of which were were uh um unfortunately microwaved
0: <laughs> well, so so uncle shows up in that piece and yeah. um uncle is someone that shows up throughout the book, uh as well as aunt and wife makes an appearance and things like that. Um but, but they're not necessarily the the uncle that uh, a reader might expect on first encountering him.
1: Yeah, he he definitely the uncle is a device in the book. Um he, he is very much uh the um he is very much my antagonist, uh, I suppose. Um, he essentially, uh, the introduction of the uncle as character, um, uh, and th- this uncle character persists throughout uh, all 50, uh, uh, essays. And of course, I did not grow up in all 50 states. Um, I think that that's, that, that's obviously clear. Um, and so the uncle is, is one part my uncle. Um, and then, you know, say 50 parts other people's uncles. Um, he's very much a composite character. Um, a lot of the stuff that he says in the book is cold from, um, interviews that I conducted with folks in the states at hand. Um, whether, uh, there were folks working for museums or historical societies or restaurant kitchens, um, or none of those, um, just, folks I, I happen to encounter through kind of a, a serpentine path and, and, uh, my kind of, um, meandering, uh, research process. And so, um, he, he's somebody with whom I can argue right there on the page. Uh, and, but he, he is real in the sense that, um, he's a little bit of a lot of very real people. um, and uh or little bits of a lot of a lot of very real people. Um I, I found Eric as I uh you know was was researching um and conducting interviews um both online and over the phone and then eventually in person. I uh I did visit all fifty states um in in twitchy fashion, uh, as I was as I was uh, putting putting this book together um in order to in order to what uh to kind of immerse myself in what the filmmaker Werner Herzog sometimes calls the, the voodoo of location. Um, and, and then conduct on-site interviews too. But I, I, I found that a lot of the narratives that, um, attend not only state histories, um, but, uh, kind of the evolution and, uh, kind of origins of these, these particular dishes, um, are myriad. And, uh, oftentimes, um, they conflict uh, with with each other, and so uh, the the uncle character um, was a way to kind of uh, uh, embody that conflict and these diverse narratives right there on the page um, so i 'll find a uh, um, you know you know some some Iowa historian. Uh, who claims that uh you know the the loose meat sandwich, which is Iowa state dish it 's kind of like a sloppy Joe without the sauce um, that the loose meat sandwich originated in this one particular way, but um a lot of the folks in Iowa have different stories and they 've heard of yeah these different origin stories, and so um the uncle uh essentially. Argues not only with me as persona in these essays, but argues with some of the research right there on the page, too, um, in order to better establish um, just how complex uh, our our narratives are in this country, and then if we conflate that, um, how complex our our identities are um, both within each state um, and then as a as a country um, entire.
0: Yeah, I, I think that as I was reading the book, he came to be something like uh, the dark, qu- contrary, hunkering doppelganger of Uncle Sam, like you know the the brother that was never acknowledged.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's he's so curmudgeonly, um, but he's he's endured such tragedy too, um, and so a lot of his uh, uh, just kind of the the, the curmudgeonliness um, is 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 birthed out of uh, uh, hardship and tragedy, um, as it oftentimes is here in uh, our our crazy, cockeyed United States of America. When you're eating
0: with one finger, that's how it turns out to be. Uh- <laughs> so 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 readers might not might not have expected to encounter uncle but they will be glad that they did um i can imagine also readers coming to the book might not have imagined even though it's called essays even though essay accommodates digression and exploration and quotation and and flights of fancy to see entire chapters written as a google search or as in notes or parentheses or organized by dates can you tell us a little bit about you know, the ways in which you're working with form in this piece?
1: Sure, sure. Let's, let's not forget about the Arkansas essay, which is, um, basically, um, narrated by an ever reincarnating beaver. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the, the dish is beaver tail stew, um, which I, I, uh, ate, um, a few times in, in Arkansas, uh, some of the beaver tail stews were delicious some of them were a little bit um challenging the the beaver tail um even though it's kind of seen in in uh, certain uh rural areas of Arkansas as this luxury cut um it can be cartilaginous if not sufficiently stewed um but uh yeah so anyway um I could talk about that one too the the ever reincarnating beaver was uh a way to um not only deal with uh what it takes to um trap a beaver and excise its tail and cook it um and eat it and what sort of um other you know uh, socio-cultural flights of fancy um as as they attend the state of Arkansas, might also attend that meditation, um, but also just to kind of meander through history um, with this animal that um, is always waiting for the other shoe to drop, and that shoe is it is going to be killed for its tail, um, and so we kind of move through that essay um, as narrated by the beaver, but uh, we also um, you know are, are privy to kind of meditations on uh, Aquinas and, um, Lewis and Clark's explorations and time that they spent in Arkansas, um, all the way up through, uh, the Clinton era, um, in Arkansas and, and what they had to do with, with, uh, the beaver, um, uh, also. And so, uh, yeah, the, the beaver was just, um, as, as narrator, I suppose, was a, a way to just kind of move from Lewis and Clark to, to Hillary and bill um, in in an effort to kind of just trace uh you know arkansas 's history in a in, in kind of a weird interesting way um, i'm always eric um, one of uh, uh my uh steps when i 'm going through the process of writing a, an essay is to um, i'm really interested in in testing an essay's parameters, not just what food writing can do and what the cookbook can do, but what the essay can do um, to see how much manipulation, to see how many flights of fancy, um, to see how much crazy juxtaposition and digression um, an essay can take before it breaks. Um, it's kind of like uh, overlaying those onion skins down um, atop those uh, architectural blueprints, you know, you begin with that that kind of bare-bones blueprint, and then you lay one onion skin atop another, atop another, atop another. And if you lay on the perfect amount of onion skins, you could kind of see the finished building and envision it. If you lay on a few too many onion skins, the building collapses. Um, but during the process, I'm always interested in the point at which the essay collapses. And then, of course, I dial back and comb out and revise. Um, but I want to see what it can take. And so um, I oftentimes shoehorn an essay into a particular form, um, whether that is in the form of a Google search or writing in the form of endnotes, or, you know, shoehorning it into the form of, of note cards or the Harvard outline or a syllabus um, or and so on and so forth. I mean, the choices are, are seemingly endless um, just to see what that would do, um, how that form would girdle the essay and make the essay uncomfortable in certain ways where certain portions of it would stick out. Out Like sore thumbs and other portions of it would conform beautifully um, to that form uh, oftentimes i won 't leave the essay in that form. Um, I just want to see what that form would do to it, and I could always take it out of that form, but rarely, after being kind of manipulated by that form, will it emerge the same. Um, its neck will be a little twisted or um, you know it 's back stretched out, uh, for instance. Um, sometimes uh, the particular essay seems to take. <laughs> to the form, like a duck to water, and um if I feel that it does i'll i'll leave it in there and just allow that uh step. To kind of be the final essay, um, uh, as it is, and, and that's kind of what happened in uh, the end notes for the Sheboygan bratwurst, um, in uh, for the Wisconsin essay, and the New Jersey Ripper, which is a deep fried hot dog, um, uh, for the New Jersey essay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I,
0: I think since we we've gotten a little bit into process and, and how the, this book emerged from, uh, what must have been, you know, various seances to get all of those dead animals to speak. There, there are a lot of, of of food bloggers out there, a lot of food writers. Um, despite the fact that it, the market seems to be saturated, you know, yet another food book. Um, I still have young writers coming up to me and asking me about how one gets into food writing and things like that. And there's this archetypical problem in most food writing. One, I think you you've shown us how you answered it again and again, but I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on it, right? And the big problem with food writing is. I am eating this thing and describing it and you reader are not. It's my fun, right? Um, So, so how do you help a younger writer start to think about moving outside of that? I am reporting an event, which so much food writing seems to be revolving around.
1: Well, I, I, I feel, I feel like there's, there's so much more to food writing too, than, than just like the description of having eaten something. Um, I, I think we really need to like, um, kind of interrogate, I mean, if we're going for that essay, like, I I am eating this and you are not, um, I think we have to interrogate our own responses to um, the thing that we're eating. Um, If we find it delicious, why we find it delicious. Um, If we find it grotesque, why we find it grotesque. Um, And what that kind of claiming of ownership, um, just by ownership by adjective, delicious or grotesque um, of a particular foodstuff means To, uh, I guess a a larger culture at hand that also eats it and whose um, opinions may may differ from ours and who are bringing their own memories and their own histories and their own economic backgrounds and racial backgrounds um, and, and regional backgrounds and things to the ways in which they eat this thing. And so um, that's a way to kind of get out of one's own head and start to think about taste um, it, c- as a communal sort of thing. Um, and all of the different ways we taste things and why we taste things um, differently and what that means and what that can tell us about ourselves. Um, I, I feel like, you know, just our reaction to the way something tastes um, isn't an end at all, but a springboard into perhaps a seemingly endless series of, of questions about identity and claiming ownership, um, and uh, violence and love, and of course family and memory and ceremony—you know, the usual um, stuff—and um, but all of those things are, are ripe for further interrogation. Um, the thing is, it's delicious. And I want to convince a reader that this is also delicious, but so what? Um, there's more to the food than that. And there's more to the act of eating and tasting than that. And there's more to, the, uh, there's more to actually wanting to entreat a reader to love what you love or dislike what you dislike than that. Um, and I feel like we have to ask ourselves those, those questions.
0: And, and I think your book is the the happy manifestation of that, that kind of deeper thinking. And and before it seems as though it is a book full of literary pleasures, which it is, uh, I just want to remind listeners that, that there are 50 recipes. You can take this book and you can make things and eat things out of it. Uh, and I'm wondering if the, there's, there's a particular recipe in it that you go back to um, or the, that still kind of haunts you as muse.
1: <laughs> oh, I, um... I was, I was debating with my editor about whether there or not the recipes should be in there because I mean, sometimes they really serve as objects to positions, um, in essays that are not necessarily about trying to make somebody desire this food and, you know, and, and to be hungry necessarily for Boston cream pie after, you know, either we have an essay about the Salem witch trials and, and various forms of punishment that were exacted on these, on these poor women in New England. Um, but, uh. The, I, I guess they're in there. So, in a way, I think it's sort of um, just an extra way in which the reader can interact with the book. Um, I do want to invite the reader to have a conversation with the book, to ha- to argue with the book. Um, you know, I mean, my my desire when writing the book wasn't to confirm readerly expectation, um, but to but to agitate it. Um, that's what. That's what I turn to art for, I guess, um, whether it's, you know, a book or a painting or something like that. Um, I want to be agitated um, out of um, maybe, you know, a sense of complacency that I didn't even realize was a sense of complacency. Um, and I, I feel like the the recipes are maybe kind of a a fun guilty pleasure ish sort of uh guilty pleasurable sort of way to um, interact with, with the book uh, uh, differently um, and kind of extend the story here. You are, you know, kind of going through all of these weird um, histories as they attend these particular foods. And, and now you get to make it in your kitchen and situate it within that particular context and maybe eat it with a heavier heart. Um, that would excite me. The, the the di- i don't know if any of the dishes are really um haunting me but the one um the one that i've been having I'm, I'm glad you you brought this up it's it's relevant because i read the hot dish um uh essay or a portion of the hot dish essay is um, I love making the hot dish recipe. It was um, contributed by a restaurant in Minneapolis called the Bulldog, and it's it's fun to see how in, in Minneapolis these days um, folks are taking hot dish, which basically um, has as you know I, I mentioned and read about very very. Humble origins, um, and turning it into something gourmet. Uh, there's actually a restaurant in Minneapolis called Hote Dish, H A U T E Dish, where they do this, um, General Chow's sweetbread hot dish that is just out of this world. Um, but, uh, I, I love how, you know, these chefs are kind of interrogating the parameters of hot dish itself and, and what can it do? And so, um, I've made this recipe and it's, it's delicious. Instead of the standard canned cream of mushroom soup, they make this beautiful roasted mushroom bechamel sauce with, um, all sorts of like wild mushrooms, some of which are foraged right there in, in the woods of, of Minnesota. Um, morels and and chanterelle mushrooms. They use cremini mushrooms, uh, too. Uh, The the meat in it is a braised beef brisket, um, but they actually braise it with this chocolate stout beer and red wine and brown sugar and and all sorts of spices. Uh, Caramelized um, truffled Brussels sprouts are involved. And, um, of course, House-made tater tots. Um, it's, it's not hot dish without the, the potato. <laughs> so, um, so those show up in there too. So that, that, um, that kind of recipe excites me and I guess haunts me if only, um, in that it served as muse, uh, via its interrogation of the parameters of something that was seen as standard.
0: Well, that, that might win over the, the foodie listeners who wouldn't have been as excited by, but which...
1: <laughs> oh you you're talking about the halibut sandwich? That's it,
0: indeed what I'm talking about.
1: <laughs> in in Alaska. I um I lived in Alaska actually for three and a half years. I uh I ran um a little breakfast joint, um essentially a breakfast and lunch counter uh adjacent to a bowling alley uh there. And um you know, uh maybe you know your standard omelets, um, but one of the sides you could get with your omelet was reindeer sausage and the um blueberries that went into the blueberry pancakes uh the, the other staff members and I would actually cull those blueberries from, from the mountains behind the restaurant. Um, for lunch, we served a butt witch. Uh, the place was called the Channel Bowl Cafe. It is now sadly defunct, but the Channel Bowl, the bowling alley, is still there. Um, and there's a bar there where, where you could see some of Juneau, Alaska's more famous alcoholics. Um but uh, we served a lot of halibut sandwiches there, and so uh, yeah, so I st- which we called the butt witch. It's known colloquially um, in in Alaska as as the butt witch. Uh, and I was interested in in how um, basically uh, we have just kind of made this goofy sort of name um, uh, out of this sandwich created from this majestic uh, kind of diaphanous, um, curtain-like, uh, gigantic fish, um, fish that are so gigantic that oftentimes when long-line fishermen pull them up, I mean, they of course dwarf the size of the boat. And, uh, these fishermen would oftentimes tell these tales of emptying their shotguns, um, into these flapping halibut, um, uh, halibut. So just to, like, injure them before reloading and emptying the shotguns a second time into the halibut in order to kill it. Um, and if they didn't do that, the flapping of this giant fish would be so violent. Um, these crews would have been swept overboard and the boats would have been destroyed. And we just kind of, I don't know, cut a little piece of it, throw it on a bun, call it a butt witch, um, and then stop thinking about it. But, uh, uh, yeah, I was I was interested in kind of that commingling of goofiness and majesty <laughs> in yes. that aspect.
0: The halibut ep- epic, the the first epic on <laughs> halibut. <laughs> right. Right. Um, well, well, just to let listeners know, I mean, I think by the end of of this interview, you come across as is a food writer, and indeed, you've written a, a wonderful memoir on one of the great wines of the world. Um, but you've also written on. Pot farms and giant squid, and so I'm just curious as to to where you're going next in your work is there Is there more dishes out there that you're you're thinking about taking up, or is, is a new subject looming on the horizon
1: I, I think eventually i'll I'll go back to food writing, but I think from my next project this is going to be so horrible, but i'm going to say it. It's going to be a palate cleanser of sorts. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, I I think I I need to take a break in between food writing projects. And um, I just really started to um, draft uh, a new book length essay um, on uh, the carrier pigeon and especially its role in South African and uh, Namibian diamond smuggling. Um, it plays, it still plays a very large role in uh, the diamond smuggling, um, you know, trade or illicit diamond trade in, uh, northern South Africa and, um, southern Namibia. And I, it's, it's a mess right now, Eric. Um, but I, 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 I'm envisioning it as, as this, what, bumping and grinding of, of blood diamonds and, The autobomb Field Guide or something.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope that when you finish it, you'll come back and talk to us about it.
1: I, I hope you have me. Thanks so much, Eric. Matthew, Frank, thanks for being on the New Books Network. It was my pleasure.
0: My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Matthew Gavin Frank, author of The Mad Feast, An Ecstatic Tour Through America's Food, on the New Books Network.